Welcome to Northgate Bible Chapel Online. Thanks for checking out our podcast, where you can listen to our latest sermons, filled with teaching, encouragement, and hope from God's Word. So whether you're outdoors, in the car, or just poured some coffee, let's dive into today's message. And we're going to read from verse 8 to verse 17. And before we do that, let's uh, commit our time to the Lord again in prayer. Almighty God, King of Kings, Lord of Lords, the Sovereign One, uh, Father, we come before you and we pray that you would uh, help as we uh, read your word, that it would convict our hearts. We pray, Lord, that you would do a mighty work in our midst. We thank you, Father God, for what you have done in the cross. In the cross is everything that you have accomplished for our souls was in the cross. As that songwriter would say, how great a chasm that lie between us. Uh, how great a mountain that I could not climb. But in my desperation, I looked to heaven and declared your name. And Father, we thank you that your name is above every name. And you send your son, our Lord Jesus Christ, into this world. Uh, to provide for us, uh, as Isaac uh, and, uh, and Abraham would go up to Mount Moriah, where Isaac would say, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the offering? And indeed, that lamb, Abraham, Abraham would respond back to Isaac, saying, God would provide. And Father, you have provided that precious son, our Lord Jesus Christ. And Father, we look to you. We pray that you would empower and help and give me the words to speak and that you would prepare our hearts this morning. In Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen. So Romans chapter 1 and we'll read from verse 8. First I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all that your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. For God is my witness whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his son, that without ceasing I make mention of you always in my prayers, making request if by some means now at last I may find a way in the will of God to come to you. For I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift so that you may be established that is, that I may be encouraged together with you by the mutual faith, both of you and me. Now, I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that I often planned to come to you, but was hindered until now. But I might have some fruit among you also, just as among the other Gentiles. I'm a debtor both to the Greeks and to the barbarians, both to the wise and to unwise. So as much as in me, I am ready to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome also. Verse 16, for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. Amen. May the Lord add his blessing uh, to the reading of his word. 
So last week, uh, we looked at verses 1 to 7. And in verses 1 to 7, uh, we saw the summary of it, and it was the gospel. So we l looked at Jesus Christ being the center, uh, the focal point, the preeminent one uh, within the gospel story, gospel being the good news. The gospel is of God. It came from God in that God provided this for us. The very purpose of the gospel is for the glory of his name. It's not for the glory of man, but rather for the glory of God. The blessings associated with the gospel are for the saints, uh, for each and every one of you. Grace and peace and mercy that we so richly enjoy today is because of what he has accomplished for us on the cross of Calvary. Eternal life and salvation in and through Christ. The presence of God in our midst and in our lives, day in, day out, guiding us. It is because of him and the blessings associated with looking to him, our Lord Jesus Christ. So the summary of verse 1 to 7 is the gospel is of God. The center is Jesus Christ. Its purpose is for his glory and its blessings are for the saints. So in this next section that we'll be looking at today, um, from verse 8 to 14, we see the outcome or the impact of, uh, impact of the gospel. Uh, how does it impact you and I? And we see the impact that it had on Paul. Paul, uh, you know, he persecuted the church of God. Uh, he went uh, with a mission to Damascus so that he would uh, bring or rally up all the Christians and put them behind bars and persecute them. But in the midst of that, God appeared to him and changed him, called him by his name. Why persecute you, me, Saul? And who are you? Uh, is what Saul would respond back to the God of heaven. And there we see God revealing himself in his righteousness to Paul. And then we see Paul getting up and going uh, to preach the gospel to the ends of the world uh, to which he was called. And so in verse 8 to 14, we see that outcome uh, or the impact that uh, God, the gospel had on the life of Paul, and we'll briefly look at that. But today's message is going to primarily focus on verse 16 and 17. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. It is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jews first and also to the Greeks. For in this the righteousness of God is revealed, that is in the gospel, uh, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. So we'll be looking at that two verses primarily for our message, but uh, a brief outline of verses 8 to 14 are what we're going to be looking at next. So in verse 8, uh, we see Paul having a heart filled with thanksgiving. Uh, he was so thankful for the church in Rome. It was not that uh, Paul had visited Rome yet. He uh, there were so many churches in Rome that had been established. It was uh, not because he was there, but it was Christ that was in the midst of the church and doing the work and raising up believers unto him. Uh, Paul was an instrument that was used for his work, but not yet in Rome. And so he was thankful for the faith of the believers that God had raised in Rome. For the saints, for fellow believers in Christ Jesus, for their faith. Um, 
the impact of the gospel in my fellow brothers and sisters in Christ should impact me and you. Uh, should impact me and you in that, yes, I am thankful for each of my brothers and sisters in Christ here today, but more than anything, giving thanks to God the Father for the faith that he has put in each and every one of you. In verse 9, uh, we see, uh, again, the impact that the gospel had on Paul. We see him serving in the Spirit, serving in the Spirit. Paul was devoted to the cause of Christ by the empowerment of the Spirit. Everything that he did was guided by the Spirit. And he served the Master in the Spirit. He served willingly and not grudgingly. In verse 9, uh, we see Paul having an attitude or a lifestyle of prayer. A lifestyle of prayer. Day in, day out, uh, moment by moment, he would give thanks and pray without ceasing. In uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 6, we read, Rejoice always in everything, give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. The will of God in Christ Jesus concerning us who have been saved by the gospel is that we pray without ceasing unto the Father who stoops down to hear our prayers. Uh, and it's not just a, okay, in the morning I wake up and I'm going to my prayer closet and spending some devoted time, yes, that is needed, but a lifestyle of prayer, day in, day out, as I'm working, as I'm doing the dishes, as I am... Uh, sending my kids to school, and all these things, looking to the Father above, looking to Christ Jesus, an attitude of prayer. In verse 10, we see again uh, him seeking the will of God. Uh, Paul uh, could have just jumped on a boat and got into uh, Rome, uh, but you know he says in these verses that he was hindered from coming. Because God had not revealed to him yet that uh, this was his will for him to go. He desired for it, but, but he was seeking the will of God and waiting on God to make it clear. Earnestly seeking his will. In, in the book of James in chapter 4, um, in verse 13 to 15, we see uh, of someone uh, you know, who is going out to do business uh, at, at a city, and there in, that, in those verses, there is this very beautiful thing that is mentioned in verse 14. Yet you say you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your lifestyle? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. Again, the word of God, not me, right? Um, so many times we live lives so presumptuously, uh, thinking that we have our whole life ahead of him, uh, ahead of us, and, uh, but you know, we do not know how much time we have left. Today might be the day that God calls you into eternity. Um, so living day by day, moment by moment, looking on to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, and doing his will. If the Lord wills, we will do this or that. And in doing so, you're submitting to the will of the Father and desiring that he would lead you and guide you. In verse 11, we see Paul's fervent love for the saints. Think about it. From 
an enemy of, of Christ followers, now we have Paul, a lover of Christ followers. Fervent, long, uh, fervent love. We read over there, I long to see you. I long to see you. He loved the saints that he had never seen before. I vividly remember about, uh, it was about 10 and a half years ago um, when we had our first child, Abigail, and uh, we were looking for a place to go for vacation, and we ended up in Quebec uh, in Canada uh, during the summer. And uh, I, there's one thing that we vividly remember. There are many things that we did uh, during our vacation, but there's this one thing that we remembered that was our fellowship with the saints uh, in a French-speaking church. Uh, so we looked up online where, should be, where we should be going for the Lord's Supper. We found this church. Uh, we knew it was French-speaking. Uh, we don't know a word of French. Uh, and uh, we went there. But we were so richly blessed by this group, this congregation of believers. But more than anything, we were so richly blessed by their fervent love for us. And that could only be possible in Christ Jesus. These were people that we had never seen before, but they would entertain us in their homes like angels. They would take us on a hike. They would provide for our needs. Everything from a group of saints that loved his people and loved God more than anything. Only in Christ Jesus we can love as Christ loved, fervent love. And that is what Paul had once he came to Christ. In verse 11 and 12 we also see uh, the aspect of imparting spiritual gifts. Once we are born into the household of God, God gives us spiritual gifts. Each one of us is gifted with spiritual gifts. It is uh, seeking him and discerning what he has given you for the edification and the building up of the church. Spiritual gifts are not for your own edification, but for the edification of the church and for the saints and for their encouragement. And so we, here we see Paul intentionally desiring that he would go to Rome with a purpose so that he would impart spiritual gifts that they would be encouraged uh, by one another. And Paul here would also say that, that he might also be encouraged by seeing their faith. Just like this church that we went to in, in Quebec, it instilled in us a fervency and thankfulness to God for these group of believers that we have never ever seen before because of their love for God and their faith. And so in the imparting of spiritual gifts, uh, in the imparting uh, not of uh, skill sets or knowledge, but rather spirit-given gifts, that he would encourage them and that he himself would be encouraged uh, by what God would be doing in their midst. In verse 13, we see uh, he desired to reap fruits um, that I might have fruits among you, fruit among you, reaping harvest or reaping fruit. You know, he was again writing to believers, writing to believers in the church in Rome, not to unbelievers. Uh, he was desiring for the fruit of faith, 
Uh, as we looked at in verse 5 of uh, chapter 1 last week, uh, that there might be a boldness in faith, that there would be not just a boldness and in coming into faith, but also the obedience of faith. And that is a fruit that Paul desired, uh, that he would see the fruit of faith, uh, or the obedience of faith there, and that he would glorify God the Father. In verse 14 and, 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 and 15, there is a very profound statement that Paul makes. And our brother uh, Bill this morning uh, mentioned that a little bit in uh, his closing statement at the Lord's Supper, where he mentioned Paul was a bond servant, he was a debtor, he was a debtor, and he was not ashamed of the gospel. Three things, he was a bond servant, he was a slave, he was a bond servant of Christ Jesus, but then he was a debtor. I'm a debtor to Greeks and barbarians, or uh, the other word there is non-Greeks. Everyone that was not Greek was called a, bar a barbarian. So Greeks and the rest of the world, the wise and the unwise, he was ready to preach the gospel. Now when Paul looked at the huge world that was around him, the world of unbelief uh, in his day, he felt a great debt to every single one. And especially to those that were in Rome. He didn't look at them with utter disdain. Uh, he didn't look at this unbelieving world with hatred, but he looked at them with love. Love to the point where he would say that I am indebted to them. I am a debtor to them because I have something that is so precious that I want them to see this. And in that sense, he is a debtor. I owe these people the gospel that I was brought into. I owe these people the good news of salvation. He looked at himself as a debtor, not with disdain or hate, um, but looked at them as people that needed Christ Jesus crucified. Now, what is our response? Do we look at the world today that is around us that do not have Christ uh, with disdain? Or do we look at them with the perspective of, I am a debtor to these people because I have something that God so richly has provided to me of no good doing of my own, a free gift, a gift of grace. And I want these that do not know the Savior to see him. I'm a debtor. I'm a debtor. A preacher once said, said this, and I'm going to quote this preacher. Uh, he said, said it in this way, beware of doing this that is despising the world. Our conservative lifestyle has become so politicized that we slip easily into feeling disdain rather than depth debt to the unbelieving people. Not so in, with Paul. Though he hated sin, rather he felt, a, felt a so overwhelmed and undeserved grace that he knew himself to be a debtor to all, Greeks and non-Greeks, wise and the foolish. So when overwhelmed by his undeserved grace, our rightful response is to preach the gospel. Uh, preach the gospel. Preach Christ Jesus crucified. You owe them as a debtor to turn them to Christ, uh, who is the answer for everything. 
His arm is not shortened that he cannot save. There is no sin that is beyond his reach uh, for forgiveness. His arms are open wide, inviting us into Christ Jesus. And oh, how free that grace is. So now moving on, we're going to look at verse 16 and 17. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. It is the power of God and the salvation. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. So now Paul, a bondservant, Paul, a debtor to the world, uh, he would say, I'm not ashamed. I'm not ashamed of what I'm preaching. I'm not ashamed of the person that I am in Christ Jesus. Now, there are many things in our lives that we can be ashamed of or embarrassed about. Things that maybe we have done, things that maybe we have said to someone uh, that every once in a while would come back to mind and, ah, oh, you know, you just feel so ashamed about it, that situation that happened or whatever, right? Um, and you just feel this utter sense of like being ashamed for your behavior and maybe a public behavior, right? But Paul here is saying, do not be ashamed. Do not be ashamed of this one thing. Do not be ashamed of Christ Jesus and the gospel that you have received. We know of Peter, um, one of the closest disciples of our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, Peter, after Jesus Christ was arrested, uh, would uh, go on uh, to a group of people that were gathering around a fire and uh, everyone's talking about Jesus Christ being arrested. Everyone probably is talking about how, uh, you know, someone took the sword and cut off the uh, ear of the uh, servant of the chief priest that was uh, going to arrest the Lord Jesus. And there are all these talks around the fire. And then there was this one servant girl that would tell all the people that were around the fire, oh, this man, Peter, he is with Christ Jesus. And what would Peter say? I do not know him. I do not know him. He was ashamed for a moment. And it was not just once, but three times. Uh, Peter would deny our Lord Jesus Christ. Peter was ashamed at that particular moment. But he didn't rest there. He didn't end up being stuck there. After the third time uh, of denying our Lord Jesus Christ, Peter uh, yeah, the, he would remember the words of the Lord Jesus Christ and him pre-telling to him that he would deny him and how the rooster is going to crow uh, after he denies him three times. And lo and behold, the rooster crows. And not just that, in, in uh, you know, Luke chapter 22 and verse 62, and you don't have to turn there, uh, we read that when the rooster crowed, Jesus turned around, looked at Peter, and Peter wept. Peter knew what he had done. Peter knew that he, for a moment, was ashamed of standing firm for Christ Jesus. Peter was ashamed. We see Peter having a repentant heart there, uh, a heart of repentance in, the, in, the, you know, in this erring disciple. And we see him now turning uh, to being unashamed of his shame. And later on, going mightily to profess Christ Jesus and him crucified uh, in the first century church. 
Now, I want to also focus on, okay, so uh, do not be ashamed. Paul was not ashamed of the gospel of Christ Jesus. Uh, we as Christ followers needn't be ashamed of who we are in Christ Jesus. But what about being shamed? It is when you're shamed that it internally works in your heart and uh, Satan continues the, the, you know, he goes about like a roaring lion seeking whom he can devour, uh, working in your hearts uh, when you are being shamed and uh, you end up retreating, so to speak, like Peter did. But will you be shamed is the question. Can I be shamed for the gospel? And the answer is yes. We will be shamed for the gospel. And this is not a surprise. This is not a surprise. Um, you know, you will hear of people saying, oh, you are one of those people. Uh, or you may be skipped from, for a promotion, or you may be looked down at, or you may be laughed at uh, for preaching Christ Jesus and him crucified. Or worse yet, you may be hated or you may be persecuted. This should not surprise us as Christ followers. Why shouldn't it not surprise us? The answer is in John chapter 15. In John chapter 15 and verse 20, the Lord Jesus Christ, before he left, he would tell his disciples this. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. If they persecuted me, the sinless, spotless lamb of God, who did right, who did miracles, who rose people from the dead, as in Lazarus, mighty witnesses even to the end where when the year of the servant uh, who came to arrest him was cut off, that he would put it back and heal him. The great I am. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. But the verse doesn't end there. And, and the beautiful thing is in the, in the next verse, in verse 21. In verse 21 we read, but all these things they will do for my name's sake, because they do not know him who sent me. The world is helpless without Christ Jesus. The world that does not have Christ have nothing to guide them. All the atrocities in this world that we see around us today is because they do not have Christ Jesus. Because they do not know him that came down from heaven because they do not know God the Father in heaven. How did the Lord Jesus Christ respond to shame is our next focal, focal point here. How did Jesus Christ, our Savior, respond? Uh, when he was reviled against, we read in 1 Peter chapter 2, he did not revile back in return, but committed himself to him who judges righteously is what we read. In Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 2, uh, we read, For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. He endured the cross, despising the shame. And the word despising that is used there is the word for uh, not to think too much of or to think little of. He didn't indwell in that. Despising, not the people, despising the shame he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God, looking to the future. A, a dear preacher that I often follow would say this, uh, shame was stripping away every earthly support that Jesus had. His friends gave way to shaming abandonment. His reputation gave way 
in shaming slander. His decency gave way in shaming nakedness. His comfort gave way in shaming torture. Being shamed, our Savior responded with unashamed joy. He, he responded with unashamed joy because he thought of you and me, wretched sinners who had no other way to come to the Father other than through him, for the joy that was set before him. Being shamed for the gospel, he responded by submitting to the will of the Father. Being shamed, he did not revile back in return. Being shamed, he did not look at his present shaming or circumstances, but to the future glory of sitting at the right hand of the throne of God. But more than anything, being shamed, he thought about the blessedness of bringing many sons to glory in Christ Jesus. Um, one of my favorite verses, uh, uh, and we sing this uh, hymn very often as well, and a verse associated with it is in 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 12. For this reason I also suffer these things. Nevertheless, I'm not ashamed. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I'm not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I'm persuaded that he is able to keep that which I've committed unto him against that day. And we will uh, recurringly see this, uh, this verse as, as, as we unfold uh, the next verse as well. So moving on, uh, so now being, being shamed, uh, internalizing that, leaving that at the feet of the Father, being unashamed for the gospel of Christ Jesus. Now we will look at verse uh, 16, the latter part. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. It's a power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, to the Jews first and also to the Greeks. The power of God is what we're going to be looking at next. Uh, in, in the New Testament, when you look at the word power, there are three or four variants of the Greek word that is used for power. And, uh, and often it is uh, delegated. It means delegated authority or physical fortitude or, or um, the aspect of dominion or ruling. But in this particular verse, uh, and in this particular power that is used in verse 16, it is the word dynamis uh, in, in Greek. And that means, uh, yeah, that is, that is a word from where you get the word dynamite or dynamic. We often hear of that in, in workplaces. Oh, he's a dynamic individual or, um, you know, uh, you also hear of dynamite, right? Like the, those words are derived from this particular word, Greek word dynamis. And what does this word uh, dynamis mean? Uh, it is an inherent force that enables for the supernatural to happen. It's an inherent force that makes the supernatural to happen. The power of God, what is the power of God? The power of God is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news of Christ Jesus. The power of God is the message of Christ Jesus being crucified, uh, who died for my sins, who was buried on the third day, and is risen. And if you do believe in that, that is the power of God for the believer in Christ Jesus. The dynamic power, the dynamis power, uh, that is able to do the supernatural in our lives, not of any doing of our own, but by the empowerment of the Spirit of God. Every believer who believes, 
Everyone who wholeheartedly rests in this truth of salvation, to him the power of God is given. God does not leave us as orphans. He does not leave us stranded. Uh, he did a work and now he's seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And he, does, he doesn't leave us as orphans is what we read in John chapter 14. Uh, he has provided for us the spirit of God which empowers us, the power of God, the gospel of God. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and verse 18, we read, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. So now, uh, the gospel of Christ Jesus, the power of God, and I divided this into two, the saving power of the gospel and the sustaining power of the gospel. The saving power of the gospel is the power of the gospel wherein our hearts were convicted at a time of the need for salvation. And we will look into that in our next, uh, next slide there. But it was the time or point when the Holy Spirit would convict our hearts of the need of a savior, of my helplessness, and of me coming and being convicted and coming to Christ. The saving power of the gospel. And that power uh, rested there. You know, that is our, our faith, our hope is in Christ Jesus, being saved by resting and believing in him. And this is the power of the gospel. So the saving power, we read in Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 25, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through Christ Jesus. And then the second part, the sustaining power. It's not just a once in a lifetime past event that has happened, but he continues to sustain us with this power. An ever-present help in time of trouble, as the psalmist would say. Ever-present reality of our salvation. Day in, day out, are you experiencing the sustaining power of God? And I pray you are. In 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 5 we read, who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed at the last time. We are kept day in, day out, in the midst of difficult circumstances, in the midst of trials, in the midst of joys. He preserves us day in, day out, by his power, until the day of our calling to be home. Sustaining power. And that is, that is what Paul would say, uh, I know whom I have believed, and I know that he is able, not because I am good, not because I have any skill set to keep myself as good, but that he is able to keep that which I've committed unto him against that day. I want to now present an example of the saving power of God and the sustaining power of God. Uh, it was uh, January, you know, January 8th, I think, or 5th, I don't remember, of 1955. Uh, there was a, a tribe, uh, the, the Wuhurani tribe in the Amazon in Ecuador. These were a, 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 a tribal group of people uh, that were called savages, or uh, they were called the Akas, and Akas mean naked savages. Uh, they would... Uh, you know, in a moment, kill people uh, that would come from the civilized world. And to these people were raised five missionaries from the United States. Five missionaries that would take the gospel 
uh, that had a heart and a desire to take the gospel to these people that were savages. Uh, the five missionaries that you see in the picture here is Jim Elliott, Nate Saint, uh, Ed McCauley, Peter Fleming, and Roger Udren. They made an attempt to reach them. They ma made uh, many strides, and uh, they saw some positive signs, and they got closer to them. But in the midst of all these, um, suddenly these Oka tribe, uh, or the Waharani tribe, they turned against these five men, uh, took their spears, uh, you know, threw it at them, and killed them instantly. Five young brothers in Christ Jesus that were crucified. Now, from man's perspective, you would think, what a waste. What a waste of these five young lives. Is this the power of God? Like, couldn't God have preserved them and saved them, uh, and then the gospel going to them so that they would be saved? The story doesn't end in their death, but it was just the starting. The cost of the gospel may look dismal from man's perspective, but God had bigger plans. Uh, Jim Elliott's widow, um, Elizabeth Elliot would go along with Nate Saint, the other, um, uh, one of the other men that were there, uh, Nate Saint's sister, Rachel, and they would, three years later in 1958, they would brave their dangers and decide that they were going to live in the midst of these tribal men that killed their husband and, and brother. How could this be possible other than by the power of God? They not, not just decided to live there, they learned the Aka language. Uh, they translated the book of Mark, uh, the Gospel of Mark, into the Aka language after learning their language. And then we will see many, many tribal members coming to know the God of the universe and salvation through the message of the Gospel that is preached to these men that God cared deeply about. Among this was a, a tribal man by the name of Minkaya. And this man, Minkaya, uh, was one of the men that had threw his spear uh, at Jim Elliot and, and, and his, uh, his friends. And this man, through the preaching of the gospel, through the faithfulness of two sisters, would come to know the saving power of God. Amen. Not just that, um, later on, this man that is standing right next to Minkaya, uh, he would, you know, Minkaya would end up being an elder uh, in the churches there. Uh, there would be many churches that would end up uh, being raised in the middle of the rainforest in the Amazon. Uh, and the man standing next to him was Nate Sain's son, Stephen. And Stephen was taken under the wing of Minkaya, the very person that had murdered his father and would uh, disciple him, would uh, baptize him, and would raise him up as his own son. Uh, how could this be possible other than by the power of God, the power, the saving power of the gospel? Not just that, uh, I also want to look at the sustaining power of God. What was it that sustained these five widows that you see in the picture here? What was it that sustained the seven children, little children that you see whose fathers were murdered that day? 
What was it that took Elizabeth Elliot to the forest to live with their killers, live with her husband's killers? None other than the sustaining power. None other than the sustaining power, day in, day out, the saving power and the sustaining power of the gospel. I'm persuaded that he is able, and he was able, and he is able to keep these five women uh, for the work of the Lord and these children. Uh, and he is able to keep us and to sustain us until the day of his coming. So let the gospel be the power that you live by and depend on day in, day out. Not the power of striving, not the power of fear, not the power of knowledge, not the power of a good education, not the power of a good job, not the power of legalism, not the power of anxiety. But may it be the power of resting in the good news of the gospel of Christ Jesus that will help us by the enablement of the Holy Spirit and that was promised to take you right to the end. So moving on. Uh, so I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God unto salvation, unto salvation. The English word for salvation came from the Latin word health, uh, health, health or safety. Uh, and so uh, just looking a little deeper into it, salvation is deliverance or preservation from danger uh, or saved from the eternal judgment and wrath of God. So uh, how can I be saved? How can you and I be saved? We've talked about the gospel of Christ Jesus. But how does this work in you and I? How did it work in me on, on December 24th of 1990? How did it work on each and every one of your hearts? How does the gospel work? How do I get saved? First and foremost, we need to recognize the need for a savior. In, in, in Romans chapter three and verse 23, we read, all have sinned. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Everyone, there is none that is righteous, not one. Paul would say, oh wretched man that I am, who would save me from this body of death? There is none that is righteous. And because I'm not righteous, and because I'm a sinner, I need a savior. I need someone uh, that can come and help me. In Titus chapter 3 and verse 5, we read, He saved us not because of works. There is nothing that I could have done in my own good to earn my own salvation. But it was the grace and the gift of God. So first and foremost, it's recognizing the need for a Savior. Secondly, God provided when I could not provide for myself. In saving myself, God provided what I could not provide in the person of his son. As we uh, meditated in the first meeting at the end, uh, Brother Rich would uh, read from Matthew chapter one, uh, where Joseph, uh, angel would encounter Joseph and tell Joseph in verse 21, she will bear a son that is talking about Mary and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. He will save. He has the power to save. God provided his son in the person of Jesus Christ. 
that whosoever believeth in him, and so it's not just the provision of the Son of God, not just me recognizing that I cannot save myself, but it's also believing that he died for your sins on the cross of Calvary. In John chapter 3 and verse 16 we read, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. He gave, he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believeth in him, whatever circumstances in life that you're at today, irrespective of the gravest of sins that you are in today, if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, he will save you. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Uh, once you are a believer in Christ Jesus, uh, we see the three tenses of salvation. Uh, it's not just a past reality, but it's also a present reality. And it's also a future reality. Uh, a believer, once you're saved and once you have trusted in Christ for salvation, you are saved from the penalty of sin. Uh, in Romans 6, verse 23, for all have sinned. Um, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. I deserved death, but I've been saved from that penalty of sin. That was my past, but it's, there's a salvation that is a present salvation. He is being, we as believers are being saved from the power of sin day in, day out by the power of the gospel, uh, which is our sanctification. And lastly, uh, we read in Romans chapter 13 and verse 11 that we will be saved from the presence of sin. What a day that will be when we will be with glory, when there will be no sin. When we will in all perfections see our Savior and glorify Him and be with Him through all eternity. What a saving grace and we look forward to that day. But all these three things, being saved from the penalty of sin, our justification, being saved from the power of sin today, being saved from the presence of sin, our future glorification, all of these are in Christ Jesus and He has provided all these for us in his saving grace. And who is this for? To all who believe, Greeks and non-Greeks, uh, gen Gentiles, uh, the wise and the foolish, everyone needs the salvation. To anyone who comes to Christ Jesus, all who appropriate of this free gift from God uh, will be saved. Moving on. Uh, our last slide, uh, the righteousness of God is revealed. So for I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, we looked at that, we looked at the power of God unto salvation to all who believe, and then we read in verse 17, for in it, that is in the gospel of God, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. So, uh, now that we have looked at what salvation means, like how did it become a reality? What was God's in working in bringing forth his son, in presenting it to us, in us believing in him? How did all this work? Um, the righteousness of God is revealed. Um, last week I looked at the word righteousness of God and uh, I, kind of rather, I think, made it a little complicated uh, because I went home and asked my kids and they couldn't tell me what righteousness was. So I had to simplify it a little bit. 
And uh, how I would simplify it is, you can look at it as the natural expression of God's holiness is his righteousness. The natural expression of God's holy. There's nothing that is unrighteous that can come before him. He is pure, he is righteous in all his ways. There is nothing wrong that he does. So the natural expression of God's holiness is God's righteousness. Another word that is used in the New Testament uh, that is interchanged uh, for the word righteousness is the word uh, justification or, or God's justice. So the righteousness of God is revealed in Christ Jesus in the gospel. Because God is righteous in all his ways and because there is no unrighteousness in him, he demands perfect righteousness from man. When Moses uh, came before God in, in the burning bush in, in Exodus, uh, he could not approach God because the ground was holy. Uh, he had to take off his feet, uh, his sandals from his feet and approach God in a holy manner. Uh, we read off later on uh, that Moses would cover his face, veil his face because of how holy and reverential God the Father was, right? Uh, and so he, because of his righteousness, because of his holiness, demands the same of us so that we can approach God. The very reason that there was a holy place and the most holy place within the tabernacle in the Old Testament and within the temple later on was because man was so unholy that there needed to be a prescribed way to approach God, a holy one, because we were unrighteous because of our sin. And no sin can come into the presence of God. So God demands, he desires a relationship from man. He desires that, but no one who is unrighteous can come into his presence. So there's a problem here. The righteousness of God also reveals the gravity of our unrighteousness, just like how we looked at in, 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 the, in salvation, right? There was a need. Uh, Everything that I look at, when I look at it from the microscope of my own life, I see so much of unrighteousness, so much of sin that is in me. Oh, wretched man that I am. So the righteousness of God, we read that the righteousness of God was revealed in the person of his son. And when this righteousness was revealed, uh, I could not stand in his presence because he is a holy God. And this revealed how sinful and unrighteous I was. The righteousness of God and our falling short of the demand uh, you know, demands, uh, demands unreserved punishment. So, so now, okay, so we see righteousness is revealed in his son. Uh, we are unrighteous. Uh, there is no good in us. And because there is no good in us, that demands punishment, right? In Romans chapter six, again, uh, just uh, recollecting that again, for the wages of sin is death. Uh, because of our unrighteousness, we deserved justly the punishment of God. But God would intervene in supplying us with a righteousness that is not our own. He would provide his son. God gave his son. And he would provide the righteousness of God in the revelation of Jesus Christ. 
God would intervene and supply what we could not supply in our own selves. This is the gospel in the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ that he would provide the righteousness of God that he so justly demanded. And so there is a great transaction that happens. And I have that verse that is put up there. Romans chapter 5 and verse 21. For he made him who knew no sin, the perfect righteous God and the righteousness revealed in Jesus Christ. He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. So what was that transaction that happened? My sin was laid upon Jesus Christ. My sin was laid upon the one that was perfect and righteous that was at the right hand of the throne of God. My sin was laid on the cross of Calvary. My burden that I couldn't carry was laid upon him. And he gave me his righteousness. The marvelous, perfect transaction happened on the cross of Calvary. The righteousness of God revealed and that righteousness provided for us in the transaction that happened on Calvary's tree. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, so that we might be the righteousness of God in him. So today when the Father in heaven looks at us, he looks at us, uh, he sees us as men that are righteous. Men uh, that were undeserving of his love, but he sees not my sin, not my unrighteousness as I approach a holy God, uh, there is no veil. The veil is torn in twain. I am in the presence of God. I, I don't need a priest to come and intercede for me uh, because the priest is holier than I am. No, I am a priest and I can come into the presence of God as a righteous son of God because when God looks at me, he sees not my righteousness, but he sees the righteousness of his son. He sees the work of his son in and through me. What a marvelous transaction. And then we read uh, from faith to faith. Um, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. This righteousness from God can be received exclusively by faith. The word that is uh, used for faith there uh, is the word trust, or to trust, to entrust, to commit, to rely upon. And this is a, a faith. This is something that is worth relying upon. This is something that will never fail you. Christ Jesus never fails. The gospel never fails. From faith to faith, from start to finish, from the time that you commit yourself to the Lord Jesus Christ, till the very last day when uh, your breath is gone, he will preserve you through the faith or through your belief, through your trust in Christ Jesus. Faith that saves. Um, a person must entrust everything uh, unto that Holy Father. By faith alone, he comes to Christ and receives his righteousness. It is an active faith. It's not a dormant faith. Uh, faith is not just simply looking uh, or thinking about what Jesus Christ has done once upon a time, uh, but it is uh, just embracing him day in and day out. Uh, Laying hold of faith is what Paul would say. Laying hold of eternal life. The object of our faith is Christ Jesus. Any faith that we place in ourselves is not saving faith. Our doings are not going to save us. Faith in church is not going to save you. Faith 
uh, in church is not going to give you a right standing before God. Faith in religious rituals or Lord's Supper or baptism is not going to uh, save you. Your faith needs to rest in Jesus Christ. This is not just a one-time faith, but we live by faith. The just shall live by faith. May the Lord help us as we go forth from here today that we would internalize what God has done for us in Christ Jesus, that we would not be ashamed of Christ Jesus, and bond servants of Christ, that we would go forth powerfully proclaiming his name, that Christ Jesus would be glorified and magnified in our lives, that his righteousness would be seen in our lives, that we would give our all uh, to the one that loved us and gave himself up for us. Uh, may we look to him as an assembly, that we would have the gospel as the center guiding force day in, day out. And that he would preserve you for, as we read, that he is able to keep you, able to sustain you by his saving grace until that day. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for your gospel. We thank you, Lord, that uh, anyone who comes to you will be saved. And Father, what a promise that is. And that is because you loved us not of our, any good doing of our own, but you loved us and you gave himself, yourself, your son for us. You provided for us when we could not provide for our own selves. We thank you, Lord, for our Jesus, Lord Jesus. We pray, Lord, that you would help us sustain us by this grace, that we would depend and entrust you day in, day out, that in the circumstances of life and the anxieties of life and the fears of life, that those things will be overcome by the overwhelming grace that you give us. My grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I'll rather glorify, rest in the glory that Christ provides. And Father, help us, Lord, day in, day out, to rest on that gospel. We give you thanks for our Lord Jesus Christ. And in his matchless and precious name we pray. Amen.